Well, I think everyone I talk to, whether convinced or unconvinced, has that same feeling in their heart. I don't want to get fooled. I don't want to get fooled into thinking that believing in the Bible or God would bring me liberty and all of a sudden I've just got new rules to follow. I think a lot of folks are skeptical how religion has caused wars, it's caused slavery, it's supported the oppression of women. And I think because of that, many of us have had the idea of keep religion to yourself, keep it private, but don't let it go public. And yet, it's becoming more and more public these days. In fact, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but we've had a lot of movies coming out recently that has faith right out in the public eye. In fact, Christian Bale, uh, who played Batman, is going to be in the new Moses coming up. I'm very excited about that. Uh, I can't wait to hear him talk to Pharaoh. You know, I'm God-man. Fly to me! <laughs> uh, also, Nicolas Cage, one of my favorite bad actors, is coming out in the reboot of Left Behind. If you haven't seen that, that's actually his one acting face right there. Uh, which brings up two questions. You know, number one, is his career finally over? Uh, and number two, uh, with all those action sequences, will his toupee be left behind? That's the real question I have. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, some of my favorite moments, uh, Nicholas Cage has addressed several uh, religious oppression movies, but one of my favorite movies was Con Air. If you didn't see him in Con Air, it probably should have been called Con Hair, because again, this real long wig, thank you for that, a real long wig. He has this horrible southern accent. He goes face-to-face with a a felon in the plane, transport plane he's in, and he starts a fight with this line. You might want to use this at home. Let's watch. I'm going to use that next time we have a staff meeting. I didn't think that went well. Put the bunny back in the box. That is a great liner to use when you get into conflict with a team or in family. But he has done several movies about religious oppression, the questions we're going to look at today. A couple of them I want to note. Drive Angry came out recently for the two people who saw it. Uh, Here's the plot summary. See if you can follow along with me. John Milton, Nicolas Cage, is an undead criminal who's broken out of hell to kill Jonah King, a cult leader who tricked Milton's daughter into joining his followers in the wake of Milton's death, only to kill her and her husband and steal their daughter, Milton's granddaughter, to be sacrificed in a satanic ritual. Did you follow any of that? Is that a true story? It's on Instagram. Sounds a lot like another Nicolas Cage movie, Ghost Rider, for those of you who didn't see this one, where Johnny Blaze, played by Nicolas Cage, makes a pact with the devil to save his daddy's life. In exchange for his soul, by day he's a stunt motorcycle rider, and by night he's the devil's bounty hunter, a flaming skeleton riding a Harley, that he only gets mad like the Hulk, and it turns into the skeleton. But one of the classics was The Wicker Man. I did not see this one, but I went and saw some clips where he uh, has a beehive on his head. Uh, He takes on the religious community. Here's the plot summary. Policeman Edward Malice, Nicolas Cage, receives news that his daughter is missing. He arrives on an island where a group of pagans live. The island is led by Sister Summersile, who is worshipped as a goddess. The villagers attack Malice, overpower him, hold him down. His legs are broken at the knees. A wire mesh helmet is placed over his head, and live bees are poured in. Malice yells, another classic line, Oh no, not the bees, not the bees. To which he then says, how can I be a good sacrifice if I don't believe in your religion? Huh? That happened in Colorado. In the, in the, <laughs> makes me wonder. I mean, it's no wonder people think religion is oppressive because every movie you see shows that when you get serious about God or faith or religion, people go crazy. In fact, I often wondered with all the new TV lineups coming up, what it would be look like if, uh, if God took over uh, the TV shows. So let's do a, a top ten list of the new TV shows coming out on God TV. Can we do that? Top 10 shows on God TV. Number 10, Leviticus and Shirley. Man, I'm looking forward to that one. Number 9, Gomorrah 5 Number 8, The Not-So-Modern Family. Everybody's got a beard in the Bible, you know that. 
Uh, number seven, abstinence in the city. The ratings have really plummeted on that one. Number six, I like this. It's coming back. Monk. Monk. Need to straighten everything. Uh, number five, I dream of Jesus. Number four, parts and resurrection. Number three, two and a half wise men. Looking forward to this one. Number two, Jonah in the shark tank. Just a new twist on an old favorite. And the number one biblical new show coming out is The Big Creation Theory, brought to you by God TV. Thank you. Yes. Well, we are going to look today at why faith in the public arena and how you may have viewed the past isn't maybe what we thought it is. We're going to look at three hurdles today, and we're going to take on some of the most difficult objections and Bible passages that you've heard of and some you haven't heard of. So we're going to start by giving you some hurdles that maybe you didn't even know you had. Uh, The first hurdle we're going to look at is the idea that the Bible supports polygamy and that women have been oppressed because all through the Bible, people have multiple wives. You see that all through the Bible, several uh, kings, uh, King David, King Solomon, King uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, 18 wives, 700 wives, six wives. So it seems like the Bible condones polygamy. We're going to address that hurdle. The second hurdle we're going to look at is the idea that the Bible condones the oppression of women. So this is a quote from 1 Corinthians. It says, let your women keep silent in the church. They are not permitted to speak. They are to be submissive, as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it's shameful for women to speak at church. You're going, I didn't even know that was in there. Now I'm angry. I came in happy. Now I'm angry. So we're going to address that hurdle. Hurdle number three we're going to look at is the idea that the Bible supports slavery. So this is a common objection that all through history, things like this verse, if a man sells his daughter as a female slave, she is not to go free as the male slaves do. So very challenging passages, something that maybe you've had these questions before or you've come face to face with somebody with these questions. In fact, Bill Maher recently was in an interview discussing these very objections to why somebody with a brain should not believe in the Bible. Let's watch. How, to explain to me how a book that's written by God, who's perfect, uh, has so much, it's pro-slavery, pro-polygamy, it's homophobic, yeah, God in the Old Testament is a psychotic mass murderer, um, you know, there's, it, I mean, there's so many things in it, and I, I always say to my religious friends, you know, if, if a pool had even one turd in it, would you jump in? <laughs> Let's just take pro-slavery. Like, if something had this one flaw in it, wouldn't that be enough to not jump in the pool? There's nothing easier than scouring the scriptures for little bits of savagery and then, you know, talking about how ridiculous it is. But the truth of the matter is that nobody, not even the most literalist literalist, is actually a literalist. They may say that they're a literalist until they find something that they don't like. So, for instance, somebody, I was having an argument with somebody who said, well, Jesus said, turn the other cheek. And I said... Well, yeah, he also said that, you know, I have not come to bring peace but the sword. And he said, oh, that's figurative. See, what you don't like is figurative and what you do like is literal. The reason the Bible matters, the reason why it's important and it's been read for thousands of years, is not because it's true or false. It's because it could mean whatever you want it to mean. In this country, not 250 years ago, both slave owners and abolitionists, not only use the same Bible to argue their viewpoints, they use the exact same verses to argue their viewpoints. That's what Scripture is about. It's about who reads it, not what it says. All right, very strong objections. And maybe you have felt that, thought that, but not been able to voice it. We're going to address that today. 
Now, let me start by zooming out to get maybe the broader context. If the Bible condones rather than condemns slavery, then why would the most famous abolitionists of the 20th century have used the Bible to promote liberation? So whatever these passages are, we ought to start there. Why would Martin Luther King choose of all the books he could have? Why did he choose to use the Bible to condemn slavery in America? Why would William Wallace, sorry, William Wilberforce, I like William Wallace too. Why did William Wilberforce abolish slavery in the United Kingdom using the Bible as his textbook if the Bible condones rather than condemns slavery? Isn't that worth considering? But... The questions still remain. What about these verses? So with that as the subtext, I want to give you two questions. And if you're new to Bible study, these will be very helpful for you. If you've never got into the Bible, these will be very helpful for you. And this will help you understand the difference between picking which verses we like or don't like and how to really dig into what the original meaning was. Two questions. The first question is, when you come to a Bible passage, you ask yourself, is this prescriptive, something you should do? And you're being admonished to do. Or is it descriptive about something that happened? Prescriptive or descriptive? The second question you want to interact with on a passage is, what is the context of the passage? And what is the context of the history it was written to? Now, these two questions are going to help you if you're a follower of Christ. They're going to help you if you're skeptical or unconvinced to help you go, okay. Now, I'm not going to eliminate your hurdles today. But I'm going to try and lower them. I'm going to try and give you reasonable responses to these. I I pick the most difficult passages to try and address, to try and lower your hurdle enough that you can clear them to begin to pursue and find out the God of the Bible, Jesus of the Bible, and move some of these out of the way. I'm hoping that you're going to discover that God honors male and female alike, that you can untangle yourself from your own hurdles, and that you can help lower them for others as well. And these tools will also help you in communication in general. The first question, is this passage prescriptive or descriptive? So let's go to the hurdle number one with those, those polygamy messages. King David had six wives and numerous concubines. Is that prescriptive or descriptive? Is it describing what he did or is it prescribing what you should do? See, it's past tense. It's describing something, not prescribing it. These are directly from the Bible. King Solomon had 700 wives. King Solomon's son had 18 wives. And there's lots more. In fact, here's a list of them at the bottom. Abraham, Esau, all through this. Solomon, Simeon, Jacob. So whenever somebody comes to you and says, do you know the Bible supports polygamy? You can say, well, the Bible describes polygamy, but it doesn't prescribe polygamy. In fact, if you read the stories of every one of these folks who got involved in polygamy, the next chapters and verses show you how it messed up everything. Hagar, Ishmael, was all because of Abraham's polygamy. Solomon, his family is a disaster. David, his family is a disaster because he begins to enter into this. So it's giving examples of describing what happens when you do this and how devastation and misunderstanding occurs in your life. So very helpful. Now, let me show you the difference between a descriptive verse and a prescriptive verse about marriage, for example. Next verse. Now, notice how this is prescribing. Deuteronomy, written by the same guy, uh, of several of those verses. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. So from the very beginning in Genesis, reiterated here in Deuteronomy, God says one man and one woman. Now, he shows you lots of examples of how the Bible characters didn't follow his advice. Which I think is another way to step back. 
Many people think the Bible is primarily good advice. Oh, it's good advice for living. If you think the Bible is primarily good advice, you're going to be very confused when you read the Bible. It's not primarily good advice. It's primarily good news about a God who works with very, very, very dysfunctional people. So if you grew up in church and you thought, I need to, I need to be like Abraham. Oh, the guy who let his wife beat the servant. I, I want to be like any character, minus maybe Joseph and Daniel, were a disaster. And the Bible is about how God works with people who have anger issues and lust issues and, 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 and adultery issues. And he works with those people and he'll work with you and me. Some more prescriptive verses. Do not commit adultery. Well, when you have a second wife, that's what you're doing. Give honor to marriage. Remain faithful to one another. Let your husband render to the wife the affection due her. This was unheard of in a culture where women didn't have any rights. It says that the woman had a right to turn to her husband and says, we're not spending enough time in the bedroom. And the Bible said, you need to give her some affection. Submit to one another as co-equals, co-temples of the Holy Spirit. It's another verse in Peter. It says, treat your wife with understanding. As you live together, it goes on to say that if you don't treat your wife well, God won't hear your prayers. Now, I could go on and on, but you see how it's helpful? These are clearly prescriptive. The other ones were clearly descriptive. And as you read through it, you find out just what a disaster occurs when you don't follow God's principles. It's like this. If I told you I really enjoyed the movie Schindler's List, right? Hey, I watched Schindler's List. It was very powerful. It really impacted me. You ought to go see it, too. So you get on YouTube, you, you zoom into a clip and you see something. It just shows these atrocities of Nazis and what they're doing. And you say, I can't believe our pastor recommended. I wonder if our pastor's a Nazi. I wonder if our pastor likes and is bigoted and likes to do horrible things to people. I said, did you watch the movie? No, but I saw enough. Well, the overall theme is how there's a man who's redemptive in rescuing people from the evil that's going on within themselves and within the society. See, the Bible is more of a rescue plan than it is a recipe for how to live. I'm not saying there isn't any of it, but it's primarily a rescue plan. All right, now let's get into a, another hard one. So I was talking with Matt, a uh, good pastor, who is uh, the atheist who was with me on stage last week, and he's brought up several of these passages. So I took one of the most difficult ones. They often come out of the book of Judges, but they're in a lot of places. This is hurdle number two, that the Bible describes or prescribes or condones the oppression of women. So here's a, another horrible passage in the Bible that my heart just aches to read. And let's read it together, but not out loud. The men would not heed him, so the man took his concubine and brought her out to meet them. And they knew her and abused her all night. This is a gang rape. Until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. Then the woman came as the day was dawning and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was till it was light. When her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way, there was his concubine fallen at the, the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, well, get up, let's get going. There was no answer. So the man lifted her up on the donkey and got up and went to his place and just like carried her like luggage. Horrible, horrible verse. And I have so many friends and family members who've been through sexual abuse. I know how that lays a devastating amount of pain and shame and hurt that ripples through generations, it ripples through marriages, it ripples through people's ability to function normally. My heart weeps with this. So 
So let's ask ourselves, is this prescriptive or descriptive? Is this God saying that this is what we ought to do, that we ought to treat people this way? Or is it describing a civilization that got so off track from God's way of honoring each other that it just went to pot? So much so that your heart should break in reading this. As any good author writes, they're showing the description to say, oh my goodness, what's happened here? You say, well, Chad, how do you know? I mean, sure, you want that to be true, but how do you know that is true? Well, you've got to read an entire book. The book of Judges, where this is taken from, has story after story. One judge sacrifices his wife because he makes a promise to God. Samson is an utter disaster. But the last verse on the last phrase of the book of Judges says this. In case you missed it, what you read, in case you didn't understand what you've been reading for the last 20 chapters, here was the point. In those days, there was no king, no leader, no spiritual leader in Israel. So everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Notice it says, in case you missed it, look backwards at those passages. Those were not prescriptive of how to live. They were descriptive of what happens in a society that gets away from God's love and God's respect. Think of Samson. Samson. Utter disaster. If you read his life, it is about a man who's obsessed and controlled by his appetites. Horrible anger issues. Terrible lust issues. You say, you know, why don't you grow up and be like Samson? Let's see, Samson, the guy who got so mad because somebody didn't, because his wife or almost wife told a riddle that he got so mad, killed 20 guys, and then he burns down people's fields, and then he heads over to the prostitute multiple times, and then he has a big drunken party, and then he sticks his hand into a lion to pull out honey to eat it because he's so consumed by his own appetites. Be like Samson. See, the book of Judges describes a God who's rescuing even one of the spiritual leaders who's so broken. He, he can't even overcome his own appetite, and yet God works with him. And God helps him get to the end of himself where he finally says, God, I am physically blind now, and I have so messed up everything. Will you help me? Will you help me? See how that question helps? Is it prescriptive or descriptive? When you come across Bible passages that show terrible things, I would say, keep digging. There's far worse. Far worse than what you've even seen. I, I've studied the Bible my whole life. I could take it to even worse ones than this. But I've tried to pick some of the hard ones. But they are describing, not prescribing. Which brings us to the next hurdle. The passage I told you, you probably didn't know about until you came in today. So let's look at this one. Does the Bible condone the oppression of women? So here's the verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34 to 35. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. For they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. To which you say, gotcha! That is prescriptive, Chad. That, you're not going to get around this one. I don't care what kind of gymnastics you have. I don't care what kind of tricks you have. Look at that. It says, let your do this, don't speak, let them. This is prescriptive. How are you going to get around this one? Well, I want you to imagine that a chauvinist wrote me a letter. And the letter says something like this. So I'm Mr. Chauvinist. I think women should be quiet. I think they're better to seen and not heard. And I hope you agree with me. And I get that in my email bin. Okay? So what you imagine, I've just received a letter with that quote in it. So I'm going to head over to the coffee shop. I need a little coffee shop music. And I'm going to reply to Mr. Chauvinist in my email. And notice from the context what you can find. All right? Here we go. Dear Mr. Chauvinist, I'd like to begin by saying that you are a pig, a porky pig. You are the piggiest pig I think I've ever met. 
I can't decide if you're acting more like the prima donna that is Miss Piggy or wanting to control others like Napoleon, the pig from Animal Farm. Regardless, your email was so chauvinistic that I was prompted to reply. You see, everyone, male and female, should talk about faith, God, and use their talents and their gifts and speaking abilities. See, God has given all of us gifts to use. All of us should do this. God made us all, male and female, to do this. As to what you wrote me, I heard that in church women are to shut up, stay silent, and it's shameful to speak. I happen to agree with that. Do you think that God speaks only through you? Are you more important than others? Are men better than women? No. God speaks through all of us. P.S. If you want to be a pig, try the meekness of piglets, the kindness of Wilbur, or the humility of babe, Chad. Now, if you saw this in our culture, you would say, clearly I know what's going on. Because it's in blue, Chad cut and pasted that from the person who wrote to him. And because what he says before it and after it is in complete contradiction to what this blue part says, and because I'm actually rebuking it, so as soon as I quote him in blue, I then immediately rebuke that comment. Do you think God speaks only through you? Right? So clearly I'm rebuking somebody I disagree with. Follow with me? Now, the book of Corinthians is actually a response to a letter that Paul got from the Corinthians, saying, here's what we think about all these issues. Throughout the book, he quotes them. In chapter six, uh, chapter 7, uh, he quotes them and says, As to what you wrote, it's not good for men to touch women. He then says, actually, sex is, uh, and physical intimacy is a gift from God. So he quotes them, and then he retorts them. So he's been doing this throughout the book. We get to chapter 14. If we took his letter and put it in this format so we could understand it, it would look like this. Notice before the quote, he talks about how Anyone should speak and anyone should be involved in public worship. If the whole church comes together in one place, all should speak. Whenever you come together, each of you should have a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, a revelation, has an interpretation. If anyone, male or female, speaks in a tongue, for all can prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. See the all, all, all? And then it's like, and now for something completely different. Let your women keep silent in the church, for they are also permitted to speak, for they are to be submissive, as the law says. Now, that law, there's no law in the Old Testament that says that. He's actually quoting a law that's from a, a sort of a, a rule added oral tradition that was not in the Bible. So they're saying, hey, we're practicing this law that's not in the Bible. We think it's true. So look what he says in verse 36. He immediately rebukes that comment and says, did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it from you only it reached? That was Who's he rebuking himself? No, he's clearly, in verse 36, making a retort to what was just said. Well, why would he retort himself? And he gets right back to his main point of saying, anyone, anyone, anyone. Look what it says next verse. If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if, again, anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Now, I could give you 20 more reasons, but for the sake of time, I'm just trying to touch on some of these. Now, so this one looks like it's prescriptive, but it's actually describing a false teaching that he was addressing. And when you put it into a context where we can understand it, you go, oh, now I get it. All right. So prescriptive and descriptive. But what about the way in which the Bible was used to endorse the slavery of women and the slavery of people who are different from you? What about those passages? Well, again, I'd zoom back and say, 
if the Bible condones, not condemns slavery, why would the abolitionists, the most famous and successful ones of the 20th century, including here, I've been to the Freedom Center, I've been to the Freedom Center with my family many times, you get to hear about a Presbyterian minister who was the primary person to help, I think it was two-thirds of the Underground Railroad came through the Cincinnati area because of Christian people of faith who saw the Bible as condemning slavery, one person owning another. But I'd like you to hear the story, if you don't know it, of William Wilberforce, a man of faith in the United Kingdom who used the Bible as his primary instrument to bring about liberation from slavery. Let's watch. What do you want with an old preacher? I'm here to seek your advice. Like me. Are you contemplating a life of solitude? People like you are too much. Besides, Wilbur, you have work to do. But now I see. No one of our age has ever taken power, which is why we're too young to realize that certain things are impossible. You're the best fighter in the house and the best speaker. One man will risk everything. Payment in kind. Is there you have I'd want, Your Grace? He'd fetch at least 25 guineas. The game is over. To speak for those who could not. Faculty, to let you know that you no longer belong to God. But to a man to make the blind see. We have no evidence that the Africans themselves have any objection to the trade. And to lead a movement that would change the world. Do it. Throw the dirty, filthy ships out of the water. Slave trade has 300 MPs in his pocket. It would be just you against them. If we were to outlaw the trade tomorrow, it would bring financial disaster. His enemy is my enemy. But will before is a rebel. No matter how loud you shout, you will not learn out the voice of the people. You still have patterns that matters more. In Africa, I was a prince. In many ways, not unlike you. God made men equal. I once was blind, but now I see. Did I write that? Yes, you did. So William Wilberforce was friends with Newton, who wrote the, the song Amazing Grace, and he was so impacted by the message of the Bible that the Bible, some difficult passages, sure, but in general, the Bible overwhelmingly has a spirit of liberty, that all of us are made in God's image, that there is only one race, it's the human race, and we're all made in his image. That that is the reoccurring theme through the entire Bible. And that liberation, proclaiming liberty to all the land. You know, I pastored a multiracial church uh, 10 years ago, 12 years ago now. And I got to see firsthand in a community that had separate but equal for years, just pretty recent before I moved there, the devastation of racism. I remember my dentist, she was a 30-year-old um, woman, she's African-American. And I just asked a little bit about what it was like growing up in that town. And she talked about how... Even the Ku Klux Klan was still going through the, I don't know if it was a parade or a march, going right through the center of their town. And how her father, who was a civil rights advocate and a strong Christian, sat with her. And as these men came by in Ku Klux Klan ridiculous outfits, swearing at her and spitting at her as a little girl. And how her dad just turned to her and said, honey, what they're doing is wrong, but God loves them too. We need to pray that God would rescue them from their racism. 
And it just struck me that a little girl could be so impacted that she could simultaneously see evil for what it was and at the same time see these as human beings too who need to be rescued from their own bigotry. But what about these passages that seem to support racism? I'm going to give you the one, but there's lots of them. But I think some of the principles I'm going to share will be helpful. Our first question is, is this prescriptive or descriptive? The second question when you come to a Bible passage is, what's the context of the passage? Zoom out. And what's the context of history? In other words, if you quote just one verse, you can get in trouble. Classic example is, flip through your Bible, Judas went and hanged himself. Flip, 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 go and do likewise. Flip, 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 what you do, do quickly. Wow, God's telling me to go hang myself quickly like Judas, right? So be careful looking at just one verse. And two, make sure you zoom out to understand because sometimes words change meanings over time. Let's take the word gentleman, for example. In the 18th century, maybe the 17th century, the word gentleman meant a landowner. So you could hear somebody say, you are a gentleman and a scoundrel. You say, that's ridiculous because the word gentleman has changed meaning over time. When we say gentleman, we don't mean somebody who owns land. We mean somebody who's kind and somebody who's supportive, right? So keep that in mind. What's the context of the verse? And then what's the context of the history to make sure we're getting the meaning right? So here's the verse that we read already. If a man sells his daughter as a female slave, she is not to go free as the male slaves do. Seems horrible. Let's zoom out a bit and look at the verses surrounding it. See what it says. Okay, next slide. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go free and pay nothing. So let's just start right there. First of all, let me tell you what the word slave meant during that time. It was not one person owning another person. It was indentured servanthood. So if you were in debt, and there's no way to get out of debt, you could turn to somebody, a boss, a company owner, and say, listen, I'm in debt, I can't provide for myself, I can't provide for my family, I will voluntarily make a deal with you. I'll work for you for seven years, if during that time you'll provide for me, provide for my family, and you will pay off my debt. I will work for seven years so you will pay off my debt. Meanwhile, that's what I'll do. What you agree to do for me is to provide for me, provide for my family, train me in a trade so that by the time the seven years are over, I'm basically launched in my own career. So actually, when you see the word slave, the way it was meant in that history, it was more like employee or somebody who's in debt who is looking for somebody to buy them out of the debt so they could be free. Second thing you notice is that it's got a limit. It can only go for seven years. And then that kept the, the, the rich from exploiting the poor by keeping them in indentured servanthood for a long time. And yet it gave them a way to pay off their debts. If he comes in married, then his wife will go out with him. So again, if his wife comes in and makes this deal together, we're both going to work for seven years. When he's released from debt, his wife's released from debt as well. But if the servant plainly says, again, look at the word servant here. So somebody who's serving the boss says, man, I love my master. I love my wife. I love my children. I, I don't want to go free. In other words, that's plausible. That you could, after seven years, say, this, this arrangement has worked so well for me. You've taught me a trade. You've given me skills. You've provided for me. You've treated me so well. I'd like to keep this going. I'd like to stay in this arrangement. Could I work for this company? Could I work for you forever? Then the master will bring him to the judges and he will be given the right. Again, notice he has the right to go before the judges with, and say, this is an agreement I'm freely making. I want to work for him forever. And this is where we get the word do loss or bond servant that's picked up in the New Testament. Continue. 
If a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, so here's what would happen many times. I'm in so much debt, I've not sold myself into bondage, but now I'm saying, boy, I, that didn't pay off all the debts. So now I'm going to say my children are going to also be paying for the, for the, for the bankruptcy that I owe. So that's the context. So if a man puts his children to be a female slave, he shall not go out as the male slaves do. Now, keep in mind the context of history. This is a time of arranged marriages. So this would be very common. You arrange your marriage. And so you would say, listen, uh, we feel like my, my, my daughter um, and you would be a good couple. And you're going to promise to not only take care of her for this period of time, but to marry her long term. So that was an arrangement that both went into. And so what happened is, if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, he shall not go out as the male slaves do. Now, why is that? If she does not please the master, who has betrothed her to himself, in other words, he promised to pay off her debt and then to actually marry her and to be with her forever. That's the promise he made. But he doesn't. He decides, hey, I'm not going to keep my promise. You paid off the debt. I'm not going to marry you. Well, in those societies, the women had no recourse. But the Bible here is saying she does have recourse. He can't just say, well, you still owe debt, I'm going to sell you off, meaning sell off your need to pay off the years of debt. Instead, he shall let her be redeemed. In other words, she could go and say, all right, um, he didn't marry me. He dealt wickedly with her or deceitfully with me. Therefore, I'm now free to go and actually find somebody who will provide for me. Now, that's in a society where if women did not have somebody to provide for them during that time, they were destitute. Now, that doesn't mean that all the things that were in that context apply to ours. But in that context, in that culture at that time, these were ways to protect the woman from being abused by the betrothed husband. There was a way to protect the poor from being exploited by the rich. And it was a way to say, instead of just sort of pushing the, the men off, the women, you were to treat them special by making sure they were provided for in the future, not just, well, go make it on your own. Now, did that fix all the problems? No. I'm not trying to eliminate your hurdles. I'm trying to lower them. Enough you can go, okay, that's still problematic. I still wish it wasn't in there, but it helps a bit. It clears it a bit. Another principle of Bible study is to use passages that are clear to help interpret the unclear ones. So let me give you a very clear one to make sure you know that I'm just making this up. In the book of Exodus, also written by Moses, it says this. Next verse. Anyone who kidnaps someone to be put to is to be put to death. So if you stole somebody, a child, a woman, a man, a, a anything, if you kidnapped them against their will, it was a death penalty sentence. Whether the victim had been sold or still in the kidnapper's possession. So even if you sold them off, you kidnapped somebody and sold them off, you, it was a death penalty. That's how serious God took treating people like property or treating people like commodities. And the Bible over and over has this theme. Now the Lord is... A, is the Spirit. And wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all of its inhabitants. That verse is actually inscribed on the liberty bell we have in America. It comes from the Old Testament. That wherever the message of God went, liberty came through. I'll give you a few examples. As the message of Jesus, the idea that God made men and women that were both made in his image. The idea that we're both given talent, spiritual gifts, that we're both literally temples of his Holy Spirit. It began to revolutionize the world. See, the New York Times or the uh, Wall Street Journal about three or four years ago said the greatest friend of feminism in Africa is Christianity. 
abuse was going down as men began to discover that God made women in their image. Women began to become entrepreneurs. They discovered the Lydia's of the Bible, a, a seller of high and purple, the entrepreneur of Proverbs 31, a, a woman business owner. When they began to discover that God gives spiritual gifts straight from him to men and women, that this was turning Africa upside down. But this message spread through history by the time Jesus came on the scene. In, the, in Rome, for example, let me tell you what happened in Rome. Next slide. Actually, two slides ahead. In Rome, this historian in the decline and fall of the Roman Empire says, marital faithfulness in the Roman Empire was virtually unknown. Not only were adultery and fornication common, but obscene sexual practices were prevalent. And yet the Christians came in and had this incredibly weird message about how men and women are sacred and that physical intimacy was sacred and that you weren't to share it with other people. You weren't to have it before marriage. You weren't to have it extramarital. You were to have it in a covenant of a long-term commitment that you were going to be naked with somebody financially, naked with somebody emotionally. And thus, in that vulnerability and in that covenant, you would be naked with them physically. But this was ridiculous. It was countercultural, and yet it turned the Roman Empire up side down and as this message began to flow through protections got put in place for the handicapped for the children under 10 protections got in place for those who are in the in the arena because christians said we're not treating these people like the bible says like human beings take women for example in greece here's some of your favorite philosophers of which i'm going to mess up their names so i'll just tell you that in advance look at the the prevalent view of women during that time Sophocles, silence is an adornment to women. Euphrates, silence is the most beautiful in women. Aristotle, silence gives grace to women. Homer, speech shall be for men only, or for men. And yet when you read Romans 16, Paul has a list of all the people working with him, and like a third of them are women. You see Jesus interacting with with the adulterous woman, with the widow, with Mary, with Mary Magdalene. You see that when Jesus crucified, all the men scatter except for John. Who's there at the cross? It's the women. Mary's mother, Mary, the first to go and tell the new news of Jesus' resurrection were the women. And as folks read the Bible, they said, wow, in a culture that treats us like second-class citizens, we're the heroes in this story. And that we who've been shamed and and treated as second-class citizens, that the Bible says that we, our very bodies, can be temples of the Holy Spirit, revolutionized everything. Came against Greece, moved to China. In China, there was a horrible practice known as foot binding. The man has said that they would bind up the, the, the feet of women, and basically their foot got crushed. This is actually the nicest picture I could find of it. The rest of them are so horrible. If you Google foot binding, it's just terrible. They would bind up the women's feet, and they said it so they could carry them and so they could serve them. But what it did is it made them less free, less economically possible for them to work because they couldn't walk. And it was the message of Christianity as it spread through China began to turn these practices upside down. It said, you're not treating this woman like a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're binding her up. This is unheard of. This is exactly the opposite of what the Bible says to do with your body or the body of someone who you should treat with understanding and care and love. And that of one of many practices that were outlawed in China because of the message of Jesus. Take India. William Carey was a missionary as he began to travel through India. A common practice in that time was the suti. The suti was a man who would marry multiple wives, usually 20, 30 years younger than him. And when he died, they would have a ceremony, very common practice. They put his body on a big pile of firewood and they would burn him. 
as a way to commemorate his funeral. But the suti meant that all of his wives, who were 20 or 30 years younger, the honorable thing to do was to stack them up on top of his body, alive, and they would be burned alive. Common cultural practice until the message of Jesus came. And the missionaries came in and said, this is wrong. This is horrible. This is terrible. These polygamy is bad. So let's untangle from polygamy. Your treatment of women is bad. And they untangled them from that. And I'm telling you, as you read through the Bible, you find time and time again that wherever the message of Jesus went, liberation came to the women. Liberation came to the slave. Liberation came to those who were forgotten. I think there's a Berkeley professor who just recently was referenced in a Q&A on this. I want you to hear his words of how the message of Christianity uniquely had a message to come against slavery. Let's watch. I think it's uh, useful to ask, when did slavery even first become morally problematic? Um, and this is the, the first case study, if you will, that, uh, where I try to identify what are the most progressive pre-Christian attitudes toward slavery. And it's simply the case that um, Greek and Roman, Greek and Latin, um, moral philosophy, even the most progressive edges of it, like Stoicism, um, lack the moral resources to offer a political critique of slavery as an institution. That begins to change, I think, radically in the fourth century. For the first time in the fourth century, um, in fact, among a group of bishops in what's now Turkey, in Cappadocia, you find actual uh, full-fledged criticisms of slavery as an institution. And in particular, I look at the social thought of an important um, Nicene bishop named Gregory of Nyssa, uh, who's the first person to say that slavery is categorically wrong. And it's a remarkable document, a sermon he's preaching on the book of Ecclesiastes that says all humans have dignity. And in particular, says, think about the slave sale. How could you exchange money for the image of God? It's almost like the, the Christian social gospel is a moral light switch. It's a, it's, a, it's a flip. It's not a kind of gradual incremental improvement. It's a kind of argument, a kind of logic that was utterly unprecedented um, in the ancient world. You might say, well, Chad, that's a nice story, but I don't know if it's true. So, again, I just gave you a little taste. I want to give you some other books you can read into in this. You say, okay, I want this lowered because I haven't pursued the God of the Bible because of my objections. I haven't pursued Jesus because of how his teachings have been misused. Here are some great books that you can write down. You can get them on Amazon. You can you know, Google them yourself. Great books. Anything by Rodney Stark, who's a sociologist, skeptic turned follower of Christ. He wrote The Victory of Reason, how Christianity led to the spread of capitalism, the spread of um, freedom, and the spread of Western culture. He also wrote a book called The, the Triumph of Christianity and The Rise of Christianity. Great books about the sociological impact in history of how this message of freedom came from the message of Jesus. Another great book, it's a little bit easier to read if you want something fast, is What If Jesus Was Never Born by James Kennedy. So if you want to write that down, think like uh, the movie It's a Wonderful Life, What If Jesus Was Never Born. And then lastly, More Than a Carpenter describes who Jesus is and how his message is so unique and so powerful it turned the world upside down. I hope these will be books that you'll begin to use in your pursuit of God. Because here's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping to lower your hurdles enough that you can make the person more important than the problem. See, many times we never get to encounter the person because of all the objections we have, the hurdles we have, the problems we have. So I'm hoping these will lower your hurdles, lower your problems so you can get to the person. Because here's the reality. I've never met anyone who believes or is skeptical, especially somebody who believes, who really work through all of their objections. 
just haven't. Usually, more times than not, they meet someone, the someone of the Bible, and that someone becomes so real and so meaningful that their objections just lower. They still have them, but they're just not as real as who they've met. The person of Jesus becomes more important than the problems. But I'm trying to help you lower the problems so that you can get to the person. You say, I'm not going to fall for that, Chad. Come on. Well, most of us already have. I'll give you an example. When it came to getting married, most of us had a list of reasons we weren't going to get married. I don't want to give up my freedom. Oh, my goodness. If I get married, I'm going to give up my freedom. You know what? Commitment. I got commitment issues. I don't even know if I want to commit to this person. I think they got commitment issues. Ooh, I don't know if I'm ready for that. But I can't even do a 30-year mortgage, let alone a lifetime commitment. I know other married people. They're miserable. Why in the world would I want to get married? My parents got divorced. I know people who got divorced. I don't know anybody who actually enjoyed this thing called marriage. I'm too young. Yeah, I'm too young. I think you should get married these days when you're 40, 50. You know, about that time. Because you know what? Marriage is expensive. Right? It's expensive. I'm not sure I have the money to provide for myself, loan somebody else. And by the way, what if I meet somebody else? I mean, honestly, what if I get to the wedding and we're coming down the aisle and there she comes and she looks beautiful and I look over and I go, that bridesmaid looks great. <laughs> right? I mean, the minute I choose one person, I'm not choosing many others, right? These were the objections you had. These were the hurdles you had. And yet many of us got married. Is it because you worked through all of your issues? Is it because you sat down with a counselor and said, I really got some commitment issues that go back to my father and grandfather. Could you help me? Did you really save up enough money that you went, oh, I'm now prepared to get married? I didn't. I've never met anybody did. Instead, something came along that was more important, more real, more compelling than your list. And what was it? Oh, no, no. It was uh, love, right? Love. No longer was marriage a thing. It was a person. I can't commit to just somebody and then you went but her him i didn't work through all my issues about whether i have enough money i just went i can't i can't imagine living my life without him without her i'm sure there's other people but i want to spend my life with this person this is what happens when you come face to face with jesus and i'm trying to help you get face to face with jesus by pushing these hurdles out of the way so you go oh are you still going to wonder about some of these passages sure are there still going to be some you're like, okay, good job on that one, on that one? I'm just trying to lower them enough that you can get to the person of Jesus and the reality of who he is can be so powerful, so endearing, so compelling that you go, I still got some questions. I still got some doubts. But I can only imagine spending my life with a God who would love me. Not give up on me when I'm angry. Not give up on me when I've been abused. Not give up on me when... When I've been shamed, a God who calls abuse for what it is, a God who speaks at the same time he condemns evil. He also says, I want to rescue the evil person from themselves. And by the way, I've got a lot of evil in me. I need to be rescued from my appetites. I need to be rescued from my idiosyncrasies. I need to be rescued from all the brokenness in me. And the message of the Bible is a rescue plan. Of a God who says, when you see me, when you discover me, when you find me, you can only imagine what it'll be like. Let's listen. Thanks, guys. And Chad, thank you for tackling some hard questions. Uh, as you can see, Horizon's a place where we love you to ask questions. 
uh, a place where you can explore and take as long as you want. In fact, if you've got any questions uh, about Horizon or about the person of Jesus, we would love to engage with you. I want to encourage you to drop by the hearth room, third door on the left as you leave, and we've got some people down there that would love to put a name with a face and engage on those questions. In fact, if you've come prepared to give, offering boxes are out the door just to the left. We kind of make it hard to give here. You've got to search out the box, and hopefully you can find it out there. I want to encourage the men, in about two and a half weeks, we're going to be starting our men's ministry. Most men live a life of responsibility, something they got to do. They never find the adventure God meant for men to live. If you're interested in pursuing that, join us on Tuesday mornings at 609. Details are in your program. You can check it out or come talk with me. We'd love to see you back next week with your questions. Thanks for coming.